Welcome to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Over the next hour, Deborah, Tracy, and their guests will help you understand therapist burnout and how to feel better now. Listen close to bring vitality back to your practice. Now, here are Deborah and Tracy. Welcome to Reconceive. I'm Deborah. And I'm Tracy. And today we'll be talking about the lonely therapist. That's right. Loneliness and the therapist. You think you know what loneliness is, but we're going to really do a deep dive today. And I'm really happy to welcome our guest, our our guest who's been here with us before. So re-welcome Dr. Doug Shirley at the Seattle School. Hi, Doug. Hello. So glad to be here. So glad you're here. So last time you were here, which was back in the summer, early fall, we talked about the village of the therapist. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the culture in which we do the kinds of work that we do Mm -hmm. and how we um, don't know each other. We've become disconnected as people who live in this professional culture. And so we're going to take that a little further today. We're going to talk about loneliness as a construct, loneliness and and the impact that it has, the health impact, and then really look deeply at the loneliness of the therapist, and then hopefully follow up that sort of depressing conversation with things that we might do that are different. Mm -hmm. So that's the agenda for today. Um, So let's just start with the concept itself. What are we really talking about when we say we're lonely? Mm-hmm. Does anybody have a, a definition? I have De- something that I, I I read, but yeah, go ahead. Well, Deborah, you, you turned me on to the work of Louise Hockley, um, psychologist. Mm-hmm. I think who maybe is in a governor in a state somewhere. Um, she contrasts loneliness with belonging. So maybe we could say loneliness is the, is the felt sense of an absence of belonging. The felt sense of an absence of belonging. Yeah, that's really good. Another definition that I saw um, when I was doing my research for the show was the discrepancy, the the perceived discrepancy between how connected I feel and how connected I know I could feel or that I want to feel. Mm. So that gap Mm. as loneliness. What I could feel. That's really interesting. That that pairs with what John Gottman talks about in what I think this was his book, The Science of Love and Be- Note of of Loss and Betrayal. Oh shoot, I should I should know my reference here. <laughs> but he says part of what creates the momentary experience of betrayal is not just a hard experience, but a thought that a good experience, an ideal experience, would be better. Ooh. So in other words, if yeah. if I feel betrayed by my wife. We have a hard moment, but then I have this thought, oh, a good wife or a good marriage or a good husband would have had a better experience. That that sort of pairing of that thought plus the experience is what brings the sense of betrayal. So that's that's a really helpful definition of loneliness. So not just so it's some dissonance between what is and what could or should be. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Almost like we're aware on some level that we could be feeling more connected, that that that's possible. And I know social media probably exacerbates that felt discrepancy. Yeah. So, so loneliness, whatever it is, whatever we've decided that it is, has some serious health consequences to it. Mm -hmm. And, and as you mentioned, Louise Hockley, um, she and, her colleagues have been looking at the impact of loneliness from a public health standpoint. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty serious. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a trifling thing. In fact, I think that um, the institutes on aging have said something about um, loneliness, being lonely, perceiving oneself as lonely, being equivalent to smoking like 15 cigarettes. Yeah. You've seen that? That stood yeah. out to me too. Yeah. There were a couple of things that surprised me about those articles. They talked about how the perception or the research shows that people don't feel more lonely now than they did 20 years ago. But 
I think that's because the epidemic of loneliness, and because it permeates society, it's not just in the field of mental health care or helpers. Um, I think it's because it's it's in the water. Mm. This feeling of loneliness or epidemic of loneliness is so insidious mm -hmm. and happens so slowly over time. It, it in a way has normalized loneliness. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we've talked a lot in the past episodes about how independence, this idea of being independent mm -hmm. is promoted within our society. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the insidious nature of loneliness. If you're independent, you know, you're doing well. Uh -huh. If you're lonely, then something must be wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Something must be wrong with you. Yeah, for sure. And, and I would agree that it's an epidemic, that, that it's come to feel kind of normal mm -hmm. to be lonely. Mm -hmm. and to be operating mm -hmm. in an isolated way. I mean, folks were using that word epidemic before the pandemic came, right? And now conversation around pandemic is, society, is subsiding, at least in, in certain areas of the country and world. And now we're back to this epidemic, right? Mm -hmm. That has probably only gotten worse since pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I would have thought the perception of people, people would say, yeah, I feel lonelier, you know, because of the pandemic, but the research is showing that that's not true. Not, not necessarily, uh, and, right. And that's why I think that, you know, it's in the water, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, both of you talked about felt sense and feeling. When I think about loneliness, I feel like I've been left out. Mm -hmm. And in a helping profession, anytime a helper tries to change how they practice to grow or evolve, it's easy during that process to feel left out because your clients are thinking, potentially, why are you doing something different? Why, why aren't we just doing the same thing you used to do? Mm -hmm. Because I was comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. So for us to be able to grow, there's always the danger of feeling lonely as you try to transform. Yeah, lonely. And you're talking about lonely in relation to our clientele. Clientele and probably other therapists, because you look around and you see therapists who aren't interested maybe in evolving, mm -hmm. their practices are booming. Mm -hmm. And their clients feel comfortable because they're not evolving. Yeah. So it's, it's, it can make it hard to grow as a therapist. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to kind of buffer yourself or, or uh, uh, you know, be ready at least for these feelings of loneliness. Well, and so many of us, oh, no, good, Deborah. Yeah, I'm just going to say that's a really good point. And it was reminding me of Shrinking, mm -hmm. <laughs> the show Shrinking, mm -hmm. which, which I know we'll talk about in a minute. Mm -hmm. This, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I just even to pair with what Tracy was saying there, we were all required to evolve to some degree when departments of health across the country shut us down, right? And send us over, sent us over to telehealth, whether we wanted to or not. Mm -hmm. I'm Currently, I've got a research team here um, associated with the Seattle School where we're looking at, at not so much client wellness in using telehealth services, but provider wellness, therapist wellness. Are we well? As providers, as people, as therapists, as we've made this transition, let's let's use this word that you're using, Tracy. Have we evolved or have we just changed? Have we swapped our modalities, so to speak? And have we actually allowed ourselves to transition? If you remember that old Bridges text, it's in its, gosh, I don't know, 25th anniversary or something. If change is what happens outside of us, transition is the personal experience of change. Have we actually allowed ourselves to transition as therapists in this world where now so many of us are providing telehealth where we didn't use to provide telehealth? Have we allowed ourselves to evolve? And if we do allow ourselves to, to evolve, what gets left behind? Because we have to remember, it's probably our loneliness that got us into the field in the first place. 
right? It's probably the places where we felt left out in yesteryear. In the first place, the residual pains and heartaches and such that brought us into, I know, I'll be a therapist. Mm-hmm. And I'll help other people resolve that sort of experience that I couldn't resolve for myself. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Usually, when we talk about therapist loneliness, which if you Google that, you will find conversations being had about therapist loneliness. But the way it's treated in in most conversations is this kind of surface level, which mm-hmm. is to say... Um, Therapists should join professional organizations mm-hmm. and go to those meetings regularly yeah. um, and seek out peer support and have better friendships with people in your office, things like that, which yeah. are great. That's a, a great place to start. But what you have brought up here, Doug, is the more foundational problem of therapist loneliness yeah. that, that's about what is baked in. What we have brought in our own attachment histories to this work. Yeah. Well, even Deborah, you're saying therapists should, right? Now there's this sort of additional imperative, this extra work for us to do. Extra work. Now, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of any sort of therapeutic frame that isn't mutual and collaborative. So, you know, I'm an I'm a associate professor at a graduate school where so much of the reading and such that we'll have students do is all about providing a service that's beneficial to the client, which I'm 100% behind. Mm-hmm. But any frame that is one way that says thou shalt give without in some ways being held or receiving thyself is a problematic frame, is a, is a temporal frame. Wow. Right. So, so, so much of what came up in um, the pandemic was this, all of this research around moral injury, um, where I did some research on, I do a lot of work with uh, spiritual and religious leaders. And so where I did some research on it was those pastors and the spiritual leaders who were the first responders in the pandemic, who couldn't do the things that they typically were able to do, like hold funerals and, you know, hold services and this sort of thing, and experienced an injury and not being able to give the care that they wished to be able to give. And so, for many of us, we carry this sense of injury, this sense of, I back to your word, Deborah, I should be able to do something. And if I didn't do it, I'm to blame. So not oh. only am I injured, I'm sort of the perpetrator of the injury. Ooh, that's what moral injury is. Right. And it functions like post-traumatic stress disorder in so many ways, flashbacks and and night terrors and all this sort of thing, right? So we can carry the injury in a post-traumatic way that again says, I didn't have the resources that I needed. I'm alone and I'm probably to blame. The therapist should, as you say, the therapist should, right? As opposed to, can we look at the frame? that maybe built a ton of fantasy into this thing from the therapist for the therapist from the beginning. Ooh, that built fantasy into it. Yeah. Can we what talk about that? Thing? I know, I know Deborah, you yeah. and I were, we're prepping a little bit with the work of, of Roy Fire, Firestone. Can we talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit? Yes. Yes. I'm sitting here with Firestone. Great. In my lap. Uh, uh, this is Robert Firestone. Oh, Robert. Um, sorry. Yeah. Well, me and my, the me article, and my citations today. Sorry. <laughs> it's it's from 1984. So there we go. Okay. Uh, so it, it's a little dated, but this is an article from Psychotherapy where he's talking about the primary fantasy bond. Yeah. A developmental perspective. Yeah. So, what is a fantasy bond? Yeah. So, basically, if, if only your viewers could have my hands, because I do this with my clients all the time. So, folks that are only hearing my voice, if you could imagine one hand laying over top of another hand, and then a space that starts to be created between the two hands, uh, the, the real and the ideal. So the theory would go, all of us are born into the world, in essence, with the real and ideal just sort of laying right on top of each other, hands together. But then as real life occurs, there's a separation between the real and the ideal. And especially for those people for whom real life is really difficult, they actually have to do a lot of psychic work to preserve their sense of the ideal. Mm -hmm. And so what Firestone would say is over time, that person creates a fantasy bond 
with ideal figures in their life. Someday my prince will come. Someday I learned this in working with uh, foster kids in the inner city of, of Philadelphia. Someday my dad's going to come and he's going to take me to Disney oh. World and he's going to get me the big stuffed animal and it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Right? In the midst of dad not showing up for a visit. Yeah. Right? That, that separation between the real and the ideal becomes pretty darn significant. Wow. And that's like dissociation in a way, mm-hmm. which we have to do. Infants have mm-hmm. to learn how to dissociate when their yes. lives are that difficult. Yes. 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 And so Tracy was speaking of independence. What Firestone will give us is this notion of pseudo-independence, that in that space between the real and the ideal, what gets set up, maybe even in sort of a dissociative way, in a less than conscious way, what gets set up is a notion of, I can't depend on anyone. Mm-hmm. In this real life that has so let me down, I can't depend on anyone. So he'll put together pseudo-independence and self-parenting. I therefore have to take care of myself, and I have to hold on to the possibility of fantasy. Again, someday yeah. my prince will come. Yeah. And so much of this happens at some mix of conscious, less than conscious levels. Right. Right? So we can ask the question for us as therapists, how many of us developed fantasy bonds early? How many of us lived in lives that were hard in real time, mm-hmm. learned to self-parent, learned to apparently look independent, maybe abided by pseudo-independence, I can't depend on anyone, I know, I'll go be a therapist, mm-hmm. and then I'll show life that I can do this thing. Yeah, that is so profound. So, what you're saying, and I guess what Robert Firestone is saying is that we had to develop that fantasy yeah. that says, I am independent, I've got yeah. this, I'm good, and someday my prince will come. Yeah. yeah. So what that does effectively is that keeps us lonely. Yeah. Alone. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe we applied for grad schools and thought, oh, maybe I could be the prince. Maybe I could be the one, the ideal the one, one. Yeah. right, who helps yeah. people like me who weren't helped in the ways that we needed to be helped. Oh, absolutely. I'll be that prince. Absolutely. I'll be that good mother. I'll be yeah. that good father. Yeah. That's what the yeah. fantasy is, right? The, the yeah. good parent. Yeah. Or the good lover or whoever, whoever it is that's going to come along and give me this elusive thing. This, this thing I've been wanting since I was an infant. That's right. And, and in case we didn't, even just the word fantasy, fantasy has lots of different definitions. I'm using the F fantasy version and would say it's just the tapes that play. Our minds, our brains are meaning-making machines, right? Dan Siegel calls them anticipation machines, right? So we're always anticipating and making meaning all the time. So you're driving down the road and your mind is thinking a hundred things. It's running tapes. That's fantasy. Mm-hmm. Our dreams are nighttime fantasies. Right? So fantasies operate at this sort of pre-conscious level. They're not quite conscious thinking. We can plug into and view the tapes at any point we want to. So in some ways, we're both responsible and not responsible for fantasies. And sometimes we actually, the things we fantasize about are the things that we carry shame about. Right? Because if we actually tapped into the way that our minds and our brains were running the tapes, we would feel shameful. Oh my gosh. What makes me, you know, when I leave a, a hard therapy hour and I have a thought, why did my client do that? Why didn't they think about me in my context? That uh-huh. could be a shameful thought for a therapist because uh-huh. I'm, in, I'm in a psychology that says I'm supposed to provide. Without having thoughts for myself. Right? It's not supposed to job. have those thoughts. It's not, it's not their job to take care of me. Right. Why, why, why do I have this fantasy of them taking care of me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've talked about the bubble a little bit. Um, the the bubble meaning I can feel that I am supposed to be a little bit removed. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. So that my needs really never come into play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I told you a little bit about my support group. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, so I have a, a little support group. It's a very small group of therapists. And we have come together with the idea that 
we should form community. There's a should there. But but I really do believe that we we can and we ought to form community for each other, um, that we all need that. Mm-hmm. But I can sometimes sit in that group and feel as though my job is to be in a bubble yeah, and to not fully engage all the parts of me that are vulnerable and weird and needy and right. unbeautiful and whatever. Right. Right. Because I need to be I need to be on point. Right. And therefore them. Right. You should keep those things to yourself. Keep them to myself. Right. Yeah. Right. Which is why you referenced shrinking. So for for folks who haven't seen it yet, it's on Apple TV, right? It's mm-hmm. this series on Apple TV. I don't know, is it five or six episodes in or something by now? Something like that. Yeah. Right? I think I've seen the most recent. But it's it's these therapists whose lives are jacked up. <laughs> right? Back to this stuff that they're supposed to be able to keep to themselves so that they can preserve the bubble, the sort of client-oriented bubble. Mm-hmm. What we see is their lives breaking down to the point where they're either not they're not able to do that or they're choosing not to do that. Right. right? Yeah, and you know, their their lives are they're jacked up, but they're so normal. Yeah. Right? Like the 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 guy uh, Jason Siegel plays the character of Jimmy Laird. Yeah who is this therapist who, I mean, in the first episode, you see him in his backyard, his neighbors discovering him back there having a party and smoking something and, you know, having Mm -hmm. painkillers and whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're hoping that he's not going to be the therapist, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) but then he is. He's Mm -hmm. the guy that goes into the office the next day and is Mm -hmm. sitting across Mm -hmm. from a client Mm-hmm. And we say, ah, shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. he is. He is. But yeah, so, so right. Their lives are jacked up a bit. Um, and, and so they're starting to do things that show their vulnerability. Yeah, the wear and tear of life. Right? I think, as we've been prepping for this podcast, you've heard me say, I think that there's an important social commentary there, right? Where we're getting a handful of stories. There's there's this, there's Stutz, which is circulating, right? This is the Jonah oh, Hill Stutz, documentary, yes. right? Yes. Where, where there are these stories coming out. So in Stutz, Stutz is ill. He's got Parkinson's, and Jonah yes. Hill's trying to do this sort of dedication, right? Before Stutz dies before he becomes in- incapable of doing the work. Right. In shrinking, again, we see lives that are jacked up, but lives that are just really human, right? Lives mm-hmm. that are really falling mm-hmm. apart, right? Mm-hmm. Jimmy is grieving the He's loss grieving. of his wife, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, I think, at least how I, part of how I experienced the show, I really appreciate it, is it's this social commentary that says the, he- the helpers and the healers did what they could to help to hold people together during the pandemic, and now we're all starting to fall apart. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. And you can feel the profound loneliness of this character, Jimmy Laird. Yes. Yes. Not only do you know do we see him grieving his his wife, but we also see him grieving the change in the relationship yes. with his daughter. Yes. Like he can't connect with her either. She's grieving in her own way. She's yes. a teenager and yes. um and you see him, you know, not quite be able to connect with his colleagues in a way that's that's affirming. He's he's lonely on all fronts. Yes. And he's starting to do things that we would maybe consider inappropriate. Yes. From yes. the guild perspective. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like in that second second episode, he says out loud to one of his clients, I'm lonely too. Yes. Right? A therapist shouldn't acknowledge that they're lonely, should they? Right. Isn't right. that giving the client a burden? An right. undue burden? Right. Well, I, I haven't had a chance to watch. I just watched a preview of it this morning. Um, but when you talk about the therapist is there to provide, it reminds me of when I was reading and listening to um, Jean Baker Miller on YouTube in the 1970s. She said, if the session is not beneficial for everyone, including the therapist, it's not beneficial to anyone. Yeah. So I'm hoping shrinking where this therapist says I'm lonely too. Yeah. Deborah, Deborah and I have talked about this. When we do co-therapy, we've agreed that it has to be healing for us. Yes. 
as well as for the client. Yes. And I think that's a, a good rule for a, a long career in a helping mm. profession. Yes, yes. Especially if we go with this notion that healing is a movement towards wholeness, right? If we're not collaboratively moving towards a, a felt sense, shared sense of wholeness with client, then what are we doing? What are we doing? We're suspending our needs. We are we are putting ourselves in a suspended kind of bubble that we're supposed to hold, you know, right. like an uncomfortable position that you hold for too right. long. Right. And Bessel van der Kolk calls that a broken model. A broken model. Right. Yeah. This notion that there's one who's arrived in the healing position or yeah. posture, the other one comes to have, you know, healing doled out. That is a broken model. So, again, I appreciate some of what shrinking is doing in pushing the envelope, giving us some sort of extreme cases of dual relationships mm -hmm. and conflict of interest and this sort of thing. But it's this helpful sort of articulation of the tensions that we feel around. Does our field, let's go back to what, what Tracy said at the beginning, can our field evolve? Right. Are we being called to evolve even in the face of our own loneliness as therapists? I love that. So well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will um, follow up on shrinking and take this a little bit farther. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Burnout takes a toll on your effectiveness with clients, patients, and students, even your kids. Reconceive brings help for all the gifted helpers out there who want to make a difference, but first need to feel better, more awake, and more creative. Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield show you a whole new way to think about mental health and the body, offering insight and inspiration to help bring back the vibrancy and joy to your work in the world. If you teach, do therapy, or provide any kind of human service, it's time to reconceive. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You're listening to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Have a question for Deborah, Tracy, or their guests? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now back to Reconceive. Welcome back to Reconceive. We are here today with our friend Doug Shirley, and we're talking about loneliness, and specifically the lonely therapist. And so we've been talking a little bit about the show Shrinking, which some of you may have been watching, the series on Apple TV um, with Jason, uh, what's his last, Jason Siegel? Yeah, Jason Siegel as Jimmy Laird and um, talking about kind of the setup in the industry of doing therapy mm -hmm. that sort of bakes in a kind of loneliness and mm -hmm. that may have been with us since we were very small children um, mm -hmm. and maybe a big part of why we even entered the field to begin with. Mm -hmm. So, and I, and I was also kind of talking about um, my support group, my therapist support group and how mm -hmm. um, I have felt sitting in the midst of these dear people who um, I have a lot in common with a kind of loneliness in that I bring into the room a sense of a bubble mm -hmm. that I need to be in this bubble and I need to be appropriate, appropriate, mm -hmm. appropriate. That word is so, uh, so present with me in kind of everything I do. I never want to be inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And that keeps me kind of lonely. Yeah. 
you know, we were we were talking about moral injury. I I I think, and and Tracy, you were talking about what's in the air and what's in the water. I think there's this general sense of how could you that sits in our society today. That as we've moved from connected to less and less uh, connected to more and more disconnected, and whatever role technologies have played, and whatever else, right? This general sense of how could you. And then I think, especially as therapists, maybe add to that then, you know, if you were to reduce that bubble or pop that, that bubble, Deborah, right? Mm-hmm. Then, then, at least for me, what I often experience is this sort of fantasized gotcha. Somebody's going to come oh, yeah. and tell you, yeah. you've done something wrong. You didn't preserve yeah. that bubble. Not just how could you, but now we gotcha. We gotcha. We knew you were inappropriate. Right. We knew you had faulty boundaries. Right. You've right. just proven that. Right. And, and Karen Marotta in her book, I think we referenced this in our first podcast together, mm-hmm. the therapist, um, nope, the analyst vulnerability. She talks about how so many of us carry guilt from all of our unfinished business in a past, past life into the yeah. work just sort of by default. And so if we're already carrying guilt, imagine how much more susceptible we're going to be to that mm-hmm. fantasized gotcha and that fantasized how could you. Right. Now say more about the fantasized how could you. Who are we t- thinking about, talking about? I, well, I, I don't. There, there, was, there was a training out of the Austin Riggs Center that I only end up hearing about. Sadly, I was meant to go, or I was, I was scheduled to go, I didn't go. But what I understand is that this group of psychologists got together and said, this notion of moral injury, we need to consider it to be sort of at the baseline of most of our interactions these days. I had a, I had a, I had a um, exterminator come and give some service at my house today, right? So the how could you is even as basic as I wait that guy's going to try to stick it to me. Mm. He's not going to give me the service that I paid for. I got I to gotta keep an eye out because at any given time, that person's going to betray me. And Rebecca, we were talking about loneliness and betrayal, Ooh. right? That person is going to betray me. So this sense of we're always waiting at that sort of pre-conscious level to be betrayed. And then as soon as we sniff trouble, there it is. You know, what, as you were talking about that exterminator, what I thought you were going to say is how the guilt or how could you feeling of having hired someone to spray chemicals on your home. Oh, well, there's to that kill too. Those that could, because that's where I went, like guilt at like, oh, I threw away a plastic bag. Oh, you know? Well, and and what, you're, what I hear you saying there is it's so layered. It's a kaleidoscope. Right? The how could you could go in so many ways. It's probably particular to our, our, our specific reference points. Okay. Right? These are the valences that, you know, the therapeutic word for me, these are the valences that we bring into the work. These are our countertransferences. Yeah. That bring us into the work. Now, now Deborah, you, you and I have been doing some back and forth since our first podcast, mm-hmm. writing back and forth on some things. And you, you had said this really important thing that, in as much as our field sort of invites us to continue the narcissistic frameworks and injuries that got us into the field in the first place, in as much as our field does that, it also seems to preclude an openness, a generosity, a hospitality around our own needs and desires to connect and to create. Right. Could you, I, I was so taken by that when you wrote that. Could you, could you say something about that? Well, I remember that I used the word narcissism and you you were struck by that word because I mm. I was thinking, you know, am I narcissistic for wanting more mm-hmm. out of this work? Mm-hmm. Um and I I don't remember you you said something about you to normalize the narcissism. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was really feeling like I should be content with just yeah. meeting other people's needs and, and suspending my own and then and then taking my own needs after hours to some therapist. Yeah. Taking care of myself after hours. You save yeah. yourself for later. You don't right. take care of yourself right here. Right. And you said something about well, maybe maybe it's more human to think about that we could be right here 
in the moment, yes, helping meet our own needs as well. Yes, yes. That even that we're willing to bring our own presence and vulnerability to sit in the face of another, and we could share share experience in that way. Coming back to what Tracy was saying, that that brings healing and wholeness to all parties involved, right? I mean, the burnout rate in our field, in the medical professions, maybe especially in pandemic, people are leaving in droves. Mm-hmm. It's just not worth it. Mm-hmm. It's not worth right? it. Right. So again, to be saying self-care is something that should be done out of hours. Okay, fine. That's true. And maybe as therapists, we're not, we're especially not good at that. Okay, fine. Good critique. Right. But we also need to look again at the frame that says, why is it so prohibitive? of certain things, certain fundamental human things, like love. My own therapist yeah. said to me a week or two ago, you know, as I was citing gratitude to him for some of the input that he had given to me, you know, this sense of like, we take, you know, these sort of, I think it maybe is like lovey-dovey feelings or something like this. And we put words to words to them like transference and counter-transference. Oh. Right? We uh. clinicalize love. We do, yeah. Gosh, talk about the precipitation of loneliness, the maintenance of loneliness. And loneliness on top of loneliness. You repeated that. Right. That came up in our first episode with Doug, which I thought was interesting. But uh, when I read about loneliness of the therapist, it talks about a real physiological response. You know, it, it reduces your ability to sleep. Quite often you eat more, you drink more alcohol. So it moves you, this feeling of loneliness, and this kind of surprised me. Yes. It moves you into a state of defense. Yes. So if you as a therapist or helper are waiting for a gotcha, then you're focused on external demands. Yes. You're in a state of fight, flight, or freeze. And because your client has a mirroring system, (laughs) They feel you, they feel your state of defense. So you were saying, uh, Bessel van der Kirk said it's a broken system. It is a broken system. And Gene Baker Miller was exactly right. If the therapist is not healing in the session with their client, then nobody's benefiting because you're moving your client into a, yes. your own state of defense. Oh my goodness, Tracy, that is so important. And what I hear you saying in that is all of that is at the nonverbal level. Mm-hmm. None of that is actually being talked about where, where a client is saying, could you imagine this? Where a client is saying to therapist, well, therapist, I see that you are operating according to a therapeutic detachment and you're going to be keeping parts of yourself from me. So therefore, <laughs> I'm going to keep part of my. None of that gets articulated. No. Right. It's all <laughs> in the in-between spaces. And even as you were talking about, you know, we eat more, we drink more, it, it, it encumbers our sleep and all such. You know, for mm-hmm. so many of us where now we've even been reduced, you all can only, I mean, you know, our, our viewers are not, not seeing any of us, but you all can only see me from chest above, right? So we've been uh-huh. reduced down to not even full right. bodies, right? Right. So right. stuff gets pushed into our bodies. But then it's like our bodies aren't even supposedly a part of the mix in the therapeutic hour. How they used to be when maybe we're sitting in the same room and sharing an ottoman together. Mm, yeah. So talk about a stack of loneliness. Yeah. Loneliness on top of loneliness. Yeah. When you put in that requirement that we not notice that we're lonely, that yeah. we not do anything about it because it's appropriate, then you have lonely upon lonely. It kind of makes me want to, when a client comes in, just let them know this is going to be a healing. Hello, my name's Tracy. Uh, <laughs> this session is going to be a healing session for me and for you. That's lovely. And go from there. I love That's that. Lovely. So I, I was thinking about this, you know, could we take this sort of moral injury-like question, how could you? And could we take it and say, well, what could we? Right? So I, I think that's some of what shrinking is pointing to, too. Right. By by not just pushing all the boundaries, but breaking through the boundaries of what mm-hmm. our ethical codes codes tell us is and isn't okay. Mm-hmm. Client living with therapist and all the right. things. Right. Right. But that I think it begs the question, what could we? 
What could we? I love the open-endedness of that. It's so expansive. Yeah. The the first thing that comes to mind for me is that I want to replace the word appropriate with the word helpful. Okay. Because so much that I've been taught is not appropriate because of the Mm. professional boundaries Mm. is stuff that could, under some circumstances, be really helpful. Yeah. Like like forming a support group of people who might might have once been my clients. Yeah. Yeah. Sitting with yeah. them in a circle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Deborah, you and I struck up this sort of Google Doc thing right after our first episode where we said, let's write back and forth to each other and see what emerges, right? That's mm-hmm. been extremely helpful to me to sit down, see where your mind has wandered, see where that connects to where my mind has wandered, and find some mix of personal and professional there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've really raised my awareness about how the larger corporate culture in which we are embedded has of course shaped the industry of mental health and and our practitioner lifestyle right right it's it's right well well, it is and you know and i work with with students who are so at odds with that but the dilemma is we can't escape the systems that are around us Mm -hmm. we have to engage them Right. Mm-hmm. And so again, I don't know what it looks like, but I'm committed to a therapeutic frame that is going to hold all parties involved better than the frames we've had in the past. Mm-hmm. Right. So much, for instance, so much of like ethical decision making, we farmed out to lawyers. Right. We said, yeah. we can't manage our own field. We're going to let the lawyers manage it for us. Of course, having legal mm-hmm. advice is important. Mm-hmm. Right. But there's something about us claiming and reclaiming our own needs, our own desires. I'll use your words to connect and to create, to love. To connect, to right? create, to love. And to say, we've got to bake that stuff into whatever, you know, what could we? That's mm-hmm. what's got to be baked into whatever comes next. And none of that connection can be achieved in a state of defense or in a state of loneliness. I so love that. So, Anat Banyel does a course called From Fixing to Connecting. Mm -hmm. And really, if everybody's going to benefit, the connection has to be made while everybody's in a state of social engagement, which does not happen if de- defensive mechanisms have been activated. Yeah. And if we move from fixing to connecting, what we're saying is, I'm not here to correct you. That's right. You're not broken. That's right. That's I love right. that. Well, and it also says self-care isn't the thing I'm supposed to fix after I'm done seeing my clients. Right. Right. That's a broken model. Self-care is something that happens outside of the frame. No, the connecting, a frame that allows for a different sort of connecting within the frame. That's the healing moment journey mm-hmm. that it seems like we're trying to point to. And it's amazing. Jean Baker Miller, she knew this in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And because of corporate overlords, that work gets left behind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, you may be broken, but you're here to help them. You're here right. to provide. It just right. doesn't it doesn't work. I'm glad right. you said corporate overlords here, because I think twenty years ago what I was noticing was that the university environment was becoming a corporate environment. Mm-hmm. And that certain things were getting published in the major journals and certain things were not mm-hmm. getting published in the major journals. Mm-hmm. You probably know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about, Doug. Mm-hmm. Like so these ideas that we're that we're feeling our way through would have mm-hmm. had no place. Right. Right. So what we call the truth and what we call useful or evidence-based right. Right. was really becoming very right. circumscribed. Right. Well, evidence-based turns into standard of care, turns into, you know, for any of us who are licensed, these are the things that were sort of held to account for in gotcha land. You didn't yeah. abide by the standard of care. But as you're saying, mm-hmm. only certain studies and voices and such are, are allowed to even play in that empirical land that mm-hmm. produces the standard of care in the first place. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So here's a, a way in which I broke that for myself. A few summers ago, I got trained in Reiki. And uh, I've mentioned this before on the show, but I, I want to go there now because Reiki is, um, you know, it's an energy practice and it's mm-hmm. it's spiritual and it's um, it's it's physiological and it's it's airy fairy crystally, right? I mean, it doesn't belong in the empirical world, um, but learning that technique, which is very meditative, I would say, has really helped me be in the moment with my clients because even mm-hmm. though I'm not doing Reiki um, while I'm 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 not doing Reiki on them, mm-hmm. um, I, although I suppose I could, I'm doing it on myself while I yeah. sit with them. And it's caused me to feel how my feet are planted on the ground and how the energy of the earth is coming up through my feet and coming into my legs and filling my body. And I can feel the vibration of that as I'm sitting across from somebody. And I know that I'm okay. That reminds me in the loneliness article, it says loneliness reduces your ability to self-regulate. Yeah. 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 Yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm just thinking, I don't know if these, I don't know this, I think I, I, this was dated what I'm, it's an old social psychology text I was teaching out of, but it said, even the fastest New York talker talks something like 250 words a minute, but the human brain can process up to 650 words a minute. And so this thing to me says it is our fantasy life. It is not the conversation that we're happening, that that we're having outside of ourselves, the 250 words a minute or less mm-hmm. that are getting passed back and forth. That's actually the the sort of minimum uh, part of the engagement, right? What's bigger is that negative space, what we're doing with ourselves. At the Seattle School, we we refer to a guy named Jeff Eaton who speaks who talks about listening to ourselves listen. It's how we listen to Ooh. ourselves listening that actually is a majority of the therapeutic work. So when we're talking about burnout and such, compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, all this sorts of stuff, yes, it will come in the exchange between therapist and client. But I think it's our fantasy life that 650 minus 250 equals 400 words. There's 400 words a minute that we give to ourselves that, again, often come from our unfinished business. I think that's where maybe the greatest extent of moral injury, how could you, comes from. And the how could you that I'm sometimes directing at myself. Right. And sometimes directing at you. and Right. Right. Yeah. So this practice, you're wise enough, Deborah, seems like you're wise enough to know that you need Reiki. There's even time and space in your therapeutic being to give yourself that while you're having the back and forth with your client. That's a generosity that I'm not sure is baked into enough of our clinical frames. I want to have that generosity for myself when I sit down with my clients. Yeah. And you know, it might look different for different people. Another piece of this that I've given myself and you're reminding me of is the artistic um, qualities of the room that I'm in. And I used to talk about this with Tracy that I would sit in a session and um, there would be a screen open in my brain where I would be rearranging the furniture Mm -hmm. and thinking about how Mm -hmm. this color belongs over there Mm -hmm. and that color belongs over here. And instead of curtains, we need stained glass. And yes, and it was raising my vibration and helping me to yes. um, be more present, even though yes. it sounds like it, I was distracted. No, it's I, I hear you're upping your creative capacity, your imagination. Yeah, right. It always so, helps. so again, if that was seen as some sort of you're distracted. Right. I'll say this very sort of provocative thing to the students. You know, I, I listen to like half of what my clients say. And it's kind of true. Right. Because I'm going to trust the field enough to say the things that need to stand out will stand out. And of course, I'm going to miss things. I'm human. Right. But I hear this thing of, again, you've authorized this creative frame within yourself to run parallel to what's happening between you and client such that you can draw on it. When it's yeah. time. Yeah. So essential. It, it puts me more squarely into the equation of us. 
Yes. And and I find that, you know, then then if my client says, I really like this stained glass you have up over here, or I, I notice this couch and this funky upholstery and or every time I come in here I feel good, then we've we've engaged in a way that's personal and I'm a yeah. part of it instead yeah. of being this neutral canvas. Yeah. And it becomes artistic. So Deborah and I have been co doing co-therapy as therapist with a group of men. And I mentioned to Deborah after watching her guide the group that she reminded me of a conductor of an orchestra. And it, mm. it made me think that all of her musical background is really one of the most beneficial things mm. for her being a therapist. Yes. Well, and Teresa, that gets back to what you were saying earlier. Such a different frame than the implicit defended me treats the explicit defended you client and supposedly has something to offer, right? The, the My ability to conduct defended self to, con, to defended other is going to be so much more limited oh, than yeah. creative, imaginative, expansive, mm. in-tuned, attenuating, yeah. intuitive, wise, vibrating, vibrant. Yeah. All Love of it. that. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I want to repeat what you just said. Um, the, the, so if I'm directing my defended self, uh, at your defended self, if I'm trying to give from a defended or lonely place, yes, something to you and yes. you're in a defended, lonely place, yes, we're going to have to deal with facts and advice and cognitions yep. and well, that's only going to end up in power struggle, I think, right? Yeah. The, the end result of that is power struggle. Right, right, absolutely. Right? But it seems like what you all are saying is the way out of power struggle is creativity. To authorize mm -hmm. oneself to conduct by way of imagination and creativity. So again, W, your words, connection, cr creativity, and I'd want to add love. Love, right? yeah. These are the things. That we need. These are the things. These are the things. So I know we just have another minute, but a piece of advice for our listeners, just a nugget. Get your feet on Mother Earth. Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. Literally. Literally. And Literally. and know know that she's been waiting for you. Yeah. Right? We're not alone. Love we that. are deeply loved. L listen to yourself listening, right? Listeners, there's mm -hmm. something that you know about this conversation that we don't even know. Because mm -hmm. if you're conducting your own energy, there's something that you know and have to bring in your own imaginative capacity that we haven't brought up because we're not you. Yeah, right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Doug Shirley. Thank you, Doug. My Hope pleasure. to talk to you again real soon. My and thank pleasure. you, listeners. Write to us and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Reconceive. We hope you've learned something today you can use to reconnect and feel better. Tune in next week for more on transforming practice. Until then, have a great week.